Deuteronomy 31, starting at verse 1. Then Moses went out and spoke these words to all Israel. I am now 120 years old and I am no longer able to lead you. The Lord has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. The Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you and you will take possession of their land. Joshua also will cross over ahead of you as the Lord said. And the Lord will do to them what he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, whom he destroyed along with their land. The Lord will deliver them to you, and you must do to them all that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them, and you must divide it among them as, your inherit as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And the second reading from Hebrews. Chapter 12, starting at verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers for by doing so, so, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to, to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexual immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let's pray as we explore this together. Father, as the book of Hebrews itself says, this word is meat, not milk. It's meat, not milk. And so again, feed us, again, nourish us and sustain us. Grow us to be the people you want us to be through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
So how then to conclude a series on the book of Hebrews? And the answer is to conclude in exactly the same way that the book of Hebrews concludes. Because here at Churchill Anglican, we teach the Bible. Uh, we let God speak. Uh, a sermon is not a chance for a person like me to sort of offer my personal thoughts and reflections on life, as if I have a personal soapbox and that's my task. No. Rather, we believe this book gives us a revelation from God. This is what we speak. As we started our series many months ago, it's a word, Hebrews, it's a word for us, but not originally to us. It's a word for us, not originally to us, hence all the strange Jewish stuff. Um, priests and temples and high priests and bulls and goats and blood and Melchizedek. But we come to the end of the book and I plan to conclude the way Hebrews concludes with straight talking wisdom from above. And as Roger began our service today, this is the penultimate week, we'll conclude over two weeks because there's so much gold here. So much gold. And I think it's true that chapter 13 is something like this. If this all be true, the contents of the letter, one, chapters 1 through 12, if this all be true, then what next? If this is all true, that suffering is real, but Christ is better, such that I would choose suffering with Christ over a charmed life without Christ, how would I then live my life? And if the contents of Hebrews is meat, not milk, as the writer says, in what ways then would the body be nourished and grow? If it indeed is an anchor for your soul, how then will you be anchored? I believe that the whole book is pastoral wisdom. It's called a word of exhortation. In next week's text, sisters, brothers, I urge you to suffer, right, to bear with my word of exhortation. It's pastoral, it's all pastoral wisdom. But he says, for in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. And I think to myself, is this some definition of the word, definition of the word briefly that I'm unaccustomed? Quite a long book. But today, the writer of Hebrews gets straight to the point. He is brief. So three points, if you're following the outline, it's on the new sheet. The message of the book, the conclusion of the book, and then finally, the key to the book. The message of the book, the conclusion of the book, and thirdly, the key to the book. So firstly, the message of the book from beginning to end is this. Please, it's, he urges us, it's this, to stay a follower of Jesus. That's it. It's the same message in Revelation, by the way. Stay right where you are. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're not, by the way, you're getting a glimpse into what might be so supremely valuable that people in this room would give up their lives, then lose it. That's a little glimpse in. But for those who are followers of Jesus, stay a follower of Jesus until you die. Stay right where you are. That's what the message is. Even if it's hard, you'll get wobbly. We all get wobbly. Just don't fall over. 
Don't give up, despite the persecution, that's the context of the letter, despite possible prison terms, first century, despite the confiscation of your property, chapter 10, exclusion from polite society, that might be us, even if it meant your death, don't do it. Of course, the writer never uses the phrase, stay a follower of Jesus. No, he uses much grander terminology. In the previous chapter, becoming a follower of Jesus is described in these terms. The writer says, but you have come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, not the old Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You've come to God, the judge of all, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Such poetry, such grand language, such truth. You see, if we have this anchor for our souls, then we are firm and secure. You see, and I just ticked the box in the census that said, Christian, <laughs> Anglican, so much more. And stopping being a follower of Jesus is not deconstructionist, um, you know, an authentic person living out their truth. No, he uses much grander terminology, and there's warnings here. Chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? 3, verse 15, today, tonight, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Chapter 6, verse 6, those who've fallen away, and 12, verse 15, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, and in our text today, chapter 12, verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks, God speaking, you see. All of which is to say, if you follow Jesus Christ, you have everything truly important, and to give up on him is to lose everything truly important. And since there is a resurrection to come, which is a key message in the book, and since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, people who have pressed forward despite hardship, let us, Hebrews 12 verse 2, throw off everything that hinders, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus who died, was raised to life, consider him who endured such opposition from Sinners, so that you, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let us consider him who is ahead of us, Jesus, and follow him. All of which is an encouragement to stay a follower of Jesus until you die. And it's as simple as that. This is exactly what Jesus said in Mark 13, 13, to those who are about to experience a great crisis. He says, the one who, in all the muck, the one who stands firm till the end will be saved. That's what Jesus said to his disciples on the eve of his death. They could have died too, but they ran away. He said to them, remain in me, John 15, remain in me as I also remain in you. Right? Stay in me as I stay in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain or stay in the vine. Martin Luther, the um, 16th century reformer, wrote this in a hymn, and though they take our life, goods, honour, children, wife, 
Yet is their profit small, these things shall vanish all, the city of God remaineth. It's hard not to think that Luther had Hebrews in mind. Of course, it is hard to know what we would do in the case of such suffering if we experienced what they experienced in the first century, our lives being not easy, but relatively easier, since our nation is a liberal nation in the classic sense of the word liberal. We currently have freedom of religion. Watch this space, but we do. This is one of the things that has bothered me about this series, uh, the hypothetical. The hypothetical. What would I do if I were faced with the confiscation of my property, if, it's, if it was the prison, if I was the one facing the prison term, um, if it was my children being tossed to the lions, what would I do? Hard to know without the experience. I've always admired martyrs, but would I be one? I hope so. But I say this to myself and perhaps to you, even though throughout history there's been so much suffering for being Christian and indeed around the world today so much, it's also true that many Christians, maybe most Christians, have had to stay Christian without suffering for being a Christian. In other words, most of us have not been afforded this strange gift that I'll never pray for. But if we had experienced such persecution, such a strange gift, we'd have truly known what an anxious system is. Where wobbly is not just, oh, sometimes I wonder if God's real. We'd have known the temptation of panic, the sound of a Roman guard. We might have experienced crippling fear, not just for our own lives, but for lives of those we love would have experienced what the Soviet citizens felt in Stalin's era, footsteps in the hallway and a knock on the door. What would we have done? Would we have freaked out, run, gathered my legal team, blogged about it? Well, this is where the conclusion of the book is so valuable. The conclusion of the book is simple. It says, if you want to stay a follower of Jesus, then be a follower of Jesus. It's not rocket science. To stay a Christian is to be one. To stay a Christian in the long term is to be one today. And it's not to scramble and worry and freak out and blog and organize your defense. Jesus says, don't worry what you'll say ahead of time which I think probably means, I'm getting this from Bible, from my community group, I think probably means um, you don't have to put, get your defence together such that the only value was getting out of the accusation. Maybe you're going to die anyway, so don't worry about it. Trust God. Say whatever is given to you. To be a follower of Jesus is to calmly, faithfully, clearly, quietly and confidently do the things that followers of Jesus always do, with or without persecution. In other words, the presenting, looming, big scare coming your way is not and should never be the determining factor in the choices you make. The crisis does not define you. Christ us. The crisis does not define you. 
Christ us. So, for example, keep being a Christian. On love, in verse 1, he says, keep on loving one another as sisters and brothers. You were already doing it before the persecution, so keep doing it during it. In the King James, let brotherly love continue. Don't let the turkeys get you down. Don't let the presenting issue determine your behaviour, even if the presenting issue is your impending death. Don't do it. Remember the prophet Daniel. There was one, he prayed with his window open three times a day. There's one day when it was said, no one can pray to anyone but the king for 30 days. All he had to do was shut the blinds or not pray for 30 days. Not pray, or at least pray and do it not publicly. What did he do on day one of the edict from the despot and dictator? He went to his window and prayed. He did yesterday, he did today what he had done yesterday. He, of course, is one of the great cloud of witnesses in chapter 11. So, in a quiet moment later, ask yourself some questions. Do you let crises affect your behaviour? Well, you do, everybody does, but how does crises affect your behaviour? Do you, rem- do you remain steady in that moment, or do you become ruder, accusatory? Do you become a bully? Do you get more judgmental, more selfish? A crisis should not define you. Christ, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. He gets straight talking on hospitality, which is not, you know, um, entertaining as it is in the West. Uh, but rather the inclusion of people into your life, maybe even into your home. In an anxious world of persecution where you don't know what a knock on the door might mean, where you don't know if the friend of your friend is an informant, we used to have Iranians in the church a couple of years ago and they felt that all the time. Doesn't that make you suspicious of people? Doesn't that make you want to close up shop? Here's what you do if you're a follower of Jesus and you believe in resurrection. Verse 2, do not forget, because you could forget, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels. Without knowing it. The King James Version, what is it? Some have entertained angels unawares. You didn't even know it. Now, the angels bit here might throw you. Don't let it throw you. The main challenge is still there. Show hospitality to strangers. Don't close up shop. I guess the reason he has to challenge them is that in persecution they may forget it to show hospitality to strangers because, you, you know, you don't trust them. But here the reason is tantalising. It's tantalised me since I, was, since I first read this verse. If you meet a stranger, it's possible that you're meeting an angelos, an angel or messenger. It could mean you're meeting a follower of Jesus who spreads the message of his word, but most likely it means a heavenly being. And this is a reason to be kind, not just to people you know, but people you don't know, because you might entertain angels unawares. Now, this guides how I think about strangers. I've met some strangers tonight. I think I don't know if they're angels. It doesn't always guide it. I wished it did. 
Now, I don't know if I've ever met an angel, but it does moderate how I treat every stranger because I might meet an angel. I don't know if I have, but I think my wife has. In Rome, she got off on the wrong train and ended up in a very bad part of Rome. And this big man, this uh, northern African man, was following her and she's worried. Eventually the man signaled that he wasn't, somehow signaled he wasn't a danger, went down to the little home and his wife came out and brought her down into the home, into this several steps down into a one bedroom apartment with three children, all, you know, they were immigrants to, to, uh, to Italy. She couldn't speak the language with anybody there, but they let her use the phone and um, <clears throat> you know, she, they, they didn't know French, Laurel did, but not. They gave her a meal, um, and, after, and for a little while, Laurel sees a note on the door, on the, uh, like a bumper sticker, which says, uh, Je t'aime Jesu, or something like that. She looks up and says, Jesus. And they say, we are followers of Jesus. They don't speak English. And Laurel tells me that from that moment on, broadly speaking, they understood each other other's language. I mean, they didn't, but they did. I can't be sure, but I wonder whether they entertain angels without knowing it in a seedy part of Rome. In first century persecution, you thought it might be a Roman. That's what you do when you live by the fear when the crisis defines you, but it might be an angel one of God's messengers. So in a quiet moment, perhaps by yourself later, ask yourself, are you closed off to people you don't know? Do you make your circle smaller as you get older rather than larger? Have you forgotten to be kind on the journey? Have you forgotten to be kind to a customer or a new employee or an Uber driver or when you're driving on the road and someone cuts in on you? Be careful about your swearing or the bird. Who knows? A neighbour who's just moved into the area. Do you lose the sense of hospitality on social media? Every now and then it happens to me, and I can't stand it when I'm tested with a stranger, and they look at me and they say, aren't you Justin Moffat? You spoke on a retreat of my church about five years ago. And I'm like, oh dear. <laughs> on the persecuted... Don't forget those in prison for their faith. Verse 3, continue to remember those in prison because the threat of your own life might consume you and you're like, I don't want to have anything to do with them. And the writer says, you must have divine empathy. Verse 3, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who were ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. The implication of this is that not everyone was suffering in that time, not everyone was in prison, but those who were needed needed their special attention as though it could have been asked. So in a quiet moment, by yourself, later, ask yourself, will I remember those who are suffering for their faith? Who do I know who's under pressure for being Christian? Is there any way I can support the persecuted church? I know that open doors do good, good work. I can make the introduction if you'd like, and maybe you'd like to give $20 a month to them. I don't know. You can go to their website and have a look. I know the Church Missionary Society, the Anglican Church Missionary Society work in secure countries. They'll just say, Anna, Southeast Asia. They do good work. Come to CMS Summer School with me if you like. It's good fun in early January. And on marriage, he says, if you want to be Christian, 
If you want to stay Christian, be Christian. And be Christian about your marriage. People who are followers of Jesus have an idea about marriage, a glorious idea about marriage, and they should stick to it. Verse 4, marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer, and indeed all the sexually immoral. It has been said that the first sexual revolution was not the one in the 60s. The first sexual revolution was the Christian one in the first centuries of the church with a glorious end, not freedom to do what you want with the body, but rather fidelity in marriage. And it was a revolution in contrast to the Greco-Roman world around them where who you slept with didn't matter, boy or girl, whether you were male or female, boy or girl, sometimes minors, how many people you slept with and when, and indeed whether they were consenting or not, if, they, if you had power over them. In contrast to the sexual liberation of the Greco-Roman world where porneia, that's the word for sexual immorality here, was rife, doesn't mean porn, it means all sexual activity outside of marriage, storming in on all this with joyful grace is the Christian sexual ethic in which marriage is honoured. And porneia, sexual activity outside of marriage, was against the plans and purposes of God as the Jewish worldview spread out through the world through grace and peace and the message of Jesus Christ. And it was revolutionary. It came with a warning, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. As always, I'm thankful for deep, abiding, forgiveness and grace to the repentant. Thank God for his mercy in this and all areas. But for those who defend their actions, and do so with a high hand, be warned, says the writer, marriage in the plans and purposes of God in creation is between a man and a woman, not a man and five women, a man and a woman, giving both, both giving to each other, both living within the restraints of sexual fidelity in marriage and abstinence in all other circumstances. This is the way of God. And I hate to point it out, but my experience is that those who deconstruct their faith, it's the sexual ethic that gets deconstructed first. That's my experience. And the writer says, don't do it. So in a quiet moment, perhaps by yourself later, ask yourself, is this an area in which I need to change to find the will of God and in his grace and in the power of his spirit do something? Do I need to take radical action against my desires? to seek help for a porn addiction, to cease a, particularly, a particular emotional relationship I might have with someone who's not my spouse, justifying it. Do I need to stop that adultery? I don't know you. Is there an adultery you need to stop? And ask for help. And we want to provide help at this church. As community group leaders, but there's men and women on staff. I think we're half men, half women on staff. So. Really, we want to help you if you're not sure what to do with those desires that seem so strong. I promise you the Spirit of God is alive in you if you are willing to be and to stay a Christian. The Christ does not, not define you. And on money and greed, the writer says, less, he says, verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Let you think my previous one was all very conservative and right-wing, you know, personal responsibility and sex. 
The writer says, check your level of greed, stemming from the heart issue of lack of contentment. The late Dr. Tim Keller used to point out, he'd say, look at verse 4. And I say to you now, look at it. A classic conservative verse, the marriage bed should be kept pure, marriage honoured by all. And look at verse 5, free from the love of money, content with what you have, a classic, you might say, liberal value. And he points out, of course, that both are important. Jesus is not from the left or the right, that he would be a pawn in your culture war. Going to enlist him for your team? You're on his team. He's not from the left or the right, but he is from above, and you cannot pit one against the other. I wish you all talked more about greed than about sex. Can't be said. I wish you talked more about sex than about greed. Equally, can't be said. So in a quiet moment, perhaps by yourself, ask yourself, is this an area in which I need to change with greed and money? Do I need to be more generous? Do I need to give more as an antidote for the lack of contentment, despite the fact that I seriously want this or that? What do I need to say no to? There's a hymn writer that said, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. In uh, chapter 13, verse 7, on your leaders, and he picks this up later in the chapter, so I'll come to it next week. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That second sentence is the one that bothers me. But uh, let, let me be clear. Verse 7 assumes a non-toxic leader. It assumes a godly leader teaching the truth. And I know this not because of modern ideas about toxicity, but rather because within the New Testament itself there are warnings against wolves. But if you do have a godly leader or godly community group leaders or other, you know, other staff members... Support them. The task is not, all jobs are hard. The task of leadership in a church is not straightforward, and it's certainly not in the first century if you're a pastor with death on the line, not just for you, but for those you lead. So let's conclude. The key to the book, the key to the book is simple. God has got your back. Or it has, always will. The gospel is better than all the messages of the world, Jesus is better than all the bosses, dictators, and powers. He's even better than the angels, the writer says. And the hope is better than all the guesswork and wishful thinking. And so the writer gives us a word about Jesus. Tom Wright thinks verse 8 is a key, is the key to the book. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. This book dives into the past and the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish story. He's the same yesterday. Jesus Christ is the same today. The writer speaks into the present, the persecution, and he's the same forever. Uh, as the writer leans forward into the future, the hope we have through resurrection, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The second person of the Trinity, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, he's the same when Moses lived, he's the same when the recipients lived of this letter, he's the same today, and it's the same forever. In other words, Jesus Christ is the constant. The persecution is not the constant, it's the variable. And if Jesus Christ is the constant, then do not order your life around the variable. It's too unstable. Word about Jesus. In verse 5, a word from God to you. The reason for being content in verse 5 is simple 
because God's got your back. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. A quote from Deuteronomy, as was read to us a moment ago, from Israel's history, just before they go into battle, be strong and courageous. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Of course, now that Jesus has separated state from faith, he said, put away your sword, and has elevated as our only weapons prayer and persuasion. We take this verse as comfort, not when we oppose someone, but rather when they oppose us. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And lastly, a word from you to God, verse 6. And so we say with confidence to each other, to God, we say with confidence, along with the psalmist, and we read this earlier in the service, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. Really, what can mere mortals do to me? Really? What can, what can they do? Take my life? Is that all? I believe in resurrection. I believe in Jesus. And we have a helper, and his name is the Lord. So, I will not be afraid. Let's pray. Father, we believe in Jesus. We believe that the Lord is my helper. We believe the truth that Jesus said that I will never leave you. Uh, I will never forsake you. I'll never, I won't leave you as orphans. And so we trust you with all the muck, all the suffering, uh, potential persecution, and we choose tonight to follow Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.